Thank you so much, Lauren. Your story is so powerful, and I'm really grateful for how vulnerably you shared. Um, my name is Ellie. Like Jared said, I actually wasn't born in Cincinnati, but I did grow up there. And Jacob and I did become boyfriend and girlfriend in the skyline. That's true. Um, and uh, I get to work with the beautiful women of South Green. I love it. I have the best job ever. Um, and so another thing that you should know about me is that I'm married to Batman. And this is true. I'm going to give you a few clues that I've picked up on over the last three years, and I think you will agree with me that I'm married to Batman. First of all, my husband, and this is kind of true of me too, but less so, he is nocturnal. He is consistently more energized and productive at 2 in the morning than he is at 2 in the afternoon. Batman. Secondly, he has incredible night vision, and this astounds me because I have better than 20-20 vision, and yet he consistently can see more than I can in the dark. Batman. Um, he also is really good at hiding in like dark shadows around our house, which Batman needs so that he can like jump out and beat people up, right? But Jacob, or Bruce, he <laughs> uses this skill to jump out and scare the crap out of me consistently. Um, and here is the kicker. Jacob has an incredibly high sense of justice. And what I mean by justice is Batman's definition of justice. And that means that people get what they deserve, and so that when people do evil things, they have to pay for it. Um, and so this kind of like fleshes out when we're watching a movie together and the bad guy is like getting his lights punched out or like his life is falling apart in a really satisfying way. It like almost makes him giddy <laughs> because he loves seeing evil get what it deserves. He loves justice. And this has been an adjustment for me in our marriage because I typically love mercy. I don't want anyone to feel bad about what they've done ever. And mercy is when I deserve to pay for what I've done, but I get a free pass and I'm forgiven. Both justice and mercy are good things, but if I'm being totally honest, what I really want is just to ignore that people do bad things at all. I kind of want to walk around with my eyes closed, like, it's fine, it's fine, and it's <laughs> just not a healthy way to live. And so tonight, we're going to open up to the book of Joel. Did I turn this on? Well... Maybe we'll figure it out. What am I doing? No, I'm going backwards. <laughs> okay. So tonight, we're going to open up to the book of Joel, and I'm going to share with you what it is that Batman has taught me about God and why I am so glad that while God is merciful and kind and compassionate, he is so much more than that. He is full of justice and righteous anger, and he takes sin seriously. And I'm going to tell you why I actually wouldn't want God to be any other way. Now, Joel, it's chock full of these like complex ideas, and so you've really got to stay with me here, because if you blank out for like 30 seconds, I'm going to start talking about locust zombie armies, and you're going to be very confused, okay? So you've got to stay with me. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm going to pray, and then we will jump right in. You can go to the next one. 
Lord, uh, this is, these are some hard ideas about you, but um, as you've taught me about your justice and your sense of uh, righteous anger towards sin, it's really caused me to love you more. And so I just pray that uh, you would help me to say true things about you and that when we walk out of this room that we would know you better and that we would love you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Joel 1.1 says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. I promise this is in the Bible, but what in the world is going on here? To summarize what Joel is saying, there we go. Uh, Everybody, listen up. Something crazy has happened. Tell everybody about it. There's been this huge locust invasion, and they've eaten everything. And if you thought that they missed something, you're wrong. They ate that too. And now for the Hebrew people that Joel is talking to, this is a really big deal because not only are they an agricultural community, but most likely this is happening to them at a time just after they've been placed back in their homeland after a long exile. And so they're home trying to put their lives back together, and a giant swarm of locusts has just come and eaten everything. And so Joel, he continues, and for the rest of the chapter, he's calling different groups of people to lament. He doesn't say, look at the bright side, or here's the silver lining. He's saying, look what's just happened. The correct response is sadness. He even talks about how the sheep and the livestock are suffering, and he says, this is really heavy. And so while he's calling these different groups of people to lament, he repeats this curious line. In verse 9, he says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. And then in verse 13, he says, the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And so this is actually the key to what Joel is really heartbroken about. The way that people would communicate with and worship God at this time was through their offerings. And specifically, the grain and drink offerings would communicate gratefulness to God for his care and blessings. And so Joel is heartbroken by the fact that people are not worshiping God. They're not communicating with God. There's no relationship with God. And so as we move on to chapter 2, something strange begins to happen. The end of verse 2 says, Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And I'm like, I thought we were talking about locusts, right? (laughs) And then in verse 4 through 9, it gets even weirder. He says, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they... Scale the wall, they march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. 
what is happening? <laughs> in verses 8 and 9, what I'm actually picturing here is the trailer of a movie. Did anyone see World War Z? Oh, that's actually more than I anticipated. I have haven't seen it, but I heard it wasn't great. Um, <laughs> the whole premise of the movie is that zombies are like taking over the world, um, but this time the zombies are fast. And uh, Brad Pitt was there too. But <laughs> in the trailer, there's this scene of these fast zombies like climbing and crawling their way over each other, trying to get over this wall into the city to eat the people. And when I read Joel 2, 8, and 9, this is what I'm picturing in my head. And I actually don't think I'm crazy. Because even scholars that have studied Joel for a lot longer than I have, obviously, get a little confused here. And they start to disagree at what point we stopped talking about like an actual locust invasion that happened and started talking about an army that's waiting on Israel's doorstep and then stopped talking about an army of like people and started talking about this buckwild spiritual force that's like burning everything in sight and running up walls and into people's houses. And I think the confusion is actually intentional because this is Joel's wake-up call to Israel. He's building tension in his writing as this mass that is attacking God's people starts to evolve and morph, and it's truly terrifying. I think if books of the Bible were movies, Joel would definitely be a horror movie. And so what he's saying is that this locust invasion is awful, but on a very real and very spiritual level, something worse is about to happen. And so we get to the end of this description at Joel 2, which says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Here we see that this fast zombie army belongs to God. And this part makes me pretty uncomfortable because often when I read parts of the Bible like this where God is powerful and intense and honestly kind of scary, I just want to breeze right past them and move on because I don't understand and I don't want to think of God usually as anything but sweet and gentle and meek. And I also think it's really common to think of like Old Testament God and New Testament God as two different people. We think of Old Testament God as like the wrathful, like intense, powerful God, and New Testament God as loving and peaceful and sweet. But we see over and over again in scripture that God does not change. We know that he is the same God today that warned his people during Joel's time of a World War Z-like destructive army. So how do we reconcile in our minds that God is both loving and forgiving and merciful? We know that, and powerful and just in this way. Because I actually think he's both, always, at the same time. As I mentioned earlier, over the past several years, I've started to realize that I actually don't want God only to ever be sweet and gentle if it's at the expense of him being powerful and just and awesome. And I would argue that you, on some level, don't want that either. And this is why I say that. The moment we open any corner of the internet, like any corner, we see that everyone is crying out for justice. 
we cannot help but see that we as people and as societies that are made up of people are not the way we're supposed to be. We're wrong in some way, and it makes us mad because we can't stand the idea of evil going unpaid for. And I think this recognition of badness in the world and the fact that it bothers us is not a bad thing. I want you to think right now of the sin in the world that really gets you riled up. Think of abuse, racism, mistreatment, dehumanization. What are some of the emotions that you hope God feels when he sees those things? How do you hope God feels when he sees abuse? What if God looked at those things and he said, it's fine. They're doing the best they can. It's not a big deal. Wouldn't that be so unsatisfying? Wouldn't that leave such an imbalance in the world if no one ever had to pay for sin? I want God to look at those things and feel angry. I want him to take those things seriously, right? It gets really dangerous, though, when we start looking out at the world and thinking, I want everyone else to pay for sin, but not me and like a few people that I really like. <laughs> because I can't, I can't want God to feel angry about everyone else's sin except for mine. And so the way that I know I'm sinful and deserving of God's justice is because if God made a movie of everything he's seen me do or say or think or feel, none of you are seeing that movie because I know my sin better than anyone else. And so I know that when God looks at the ways I've mistreated some people, I can't just hope that he feels differently just because it's me doing it. You see, I don't get to define justice. God gets to define justice. But if God gets to define justice, then we're all in the same boat. There is no us and them. We all fall short of God's standard. And in Joel and in scripture, we see what is truly just because God is talking to his own people here and saying what is right and just for you to experience for what you've done is fast zombies. Not actually, but you know what I'm talking about. He's saying utter destruction. We are all in the same boat. So what do we do? We keep reading. And Joel 2.12 Ah, oh, this part is so good. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, during this time and in this culture, people would express great sadness and distress by doing this awesome thing where they would like rip their clothes. I think we should do that now. Like, oh, I failed my test. I'm going to rip my sleeve off. Um, <laughs> but he's saying, no, I, I don't want you to do this outward thing that shows something. I, I want you to rip your hearts open. I want your hearts. And I want you to feel like true remorse over the situation that you're in. And then he goes on and he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Later in Joel, we discover that for Israel, there's a happy ending. They did turn to God, and he not only stopped the disaster, the army waiting on Israel's doorstep, but the spiritual destruction, and he blessed them so far beyond what they deserved. It says he satisfied them with good things. And did you catch the part at the end about the grain and the drink offering? Because here we see what Joel was so sad about earlier. But God, when he offered them mercy, he also provided them with the very resources they needed to communicate with God and to worship him. And so, friends, we actually have even better news. Jumping ahead of myself. We have even better news because we no longer, like the Israelites, have to say, who knows? The Israelites had to turn to God and and hope for the best, hope that he would be merciful to them. But we no longer have to say, who knows? And this is the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. The reason we don't have to wonder whether or not God will turn from disaster and offer us mercy is because God found a way to do both to carry out true, satisfying justice, and to be merciful to his people. And the way that he did that was that he took out fast zombie wrath and destruction on himself. Do you hear that? He took out the destruction that we deserve for our sin on himself. When Jesus became a man, God took all of the righteous anger and wrath and justice, and he poured it out on Jesus, the only man who ever lived a perfect life and so could have avoided it. He took it out on Jesus. I've got a picture up here that describes what is going on. The stick man on the right is us. And because of our rejection of God and our sin, what is coming towards us is justice. This is what is supposed to be true. This is what is just for our sin. But this is what Jesus did when he went to the cross. It is like Jesus is standing in front of us and like a sponge absorbing all of the justice, the destruction, and the guilt that we deserve. And his death did it all. It was enough. Because of Jesus, we do not have to experience any judgment or fear or anger from God. God took out full justice on Jesus, on himself. And nothing gets by him. And by doing this, he rescues us. And now we get to have peace and like the Israelites' relationship with God. We have freedom from the justice that sin brings on us. And the only requirement that God asks from us is found in Joel 2, 12 through 15, where he says, return to the Lord your God, rend your hearts and not your garments. He wants our hearts. In Joel 2.32, it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it's repeated in the New Testament in Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued. When we cry out to God, he rescues us, and he will, and we don't have to say who knows, because he already paid completely for what we deserve. And the only reason is because he loves us. 
I've observed in myself and in other people that I've walked through this with, this moment when we fully realize, more fully than we have before, what it is that Jesus has done for us in Jesus, and we, what God has done for us in Jesus, and we realize, this is crazy. Like, there's just, like, no reason why God should have rescued us. He could have left us and let our own sin destroy us. And I don't have an answer for why he rescued us other than the fact that he loves us and he cares about us and he wants to offer us mercy. And so if you've never invited Jesus to stand in front of you and to absorb the justice for your sins, I invite you to do that tonight. I still love mercy. And I realized that through three years of being married to Batman and through studying the book of Joel that I love justice too. And I want you to experience the real gutsy mercy that Jesus offers us freely because he already bought it for us at the infinite price of his death. So you can turn tonight to God and be rescued if you'd like. Some of these concepts are things that have taken me years to appreciate. I think it still feels tough reading some stories about God and scripture and just being okay with who he is. And so if you have questions tonight about anything that I've said, I would love to sit down and talk with you. And I think there are other staff in this room that would be happy to talk with you as well. But I just have three questions up here that I want you to ask yourself. We're going to um, think that band is going to come up here soon after I pray. And you can spend some time thinking, do I tend to desire justice for everyone else's sin but my own? Am I captivated by the fact that God took out justice that we deserve for sin and suffering on himself? And have I accepted the gift that Jesus offers to stand in front of me and absorb justice for my sin? And if I have, am I now living in freedom from all of the judgment, fear, and guilt that Jesus absorbed for me? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for tonight that uh, we got to dig into Joel, this weird book at the end of the Old Testament and see some true things about who you are. And Lord, it's pretty hard to imagine you as uh, wrathful against sin, but I, I want you to take sin seriously. It's just hard when I realize that I'm a sinner too. I pray, Lord, that as we sing to you tonight, we would have a better understanding of who you are and that um, if there are people in this room that have not accepted the gift that Jesus freely offers to stand in front of them and to take on the justice that we deserve for sin, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you tonight. Um, thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.